post. Um, I don't want to take them home with me. So if you're interested, if you're a reader, you can add your Jonathan asked me if I would introduce myself rather than him needing to try and do that. And so I thought, how, how could I do that before sharing what I think uh, the Lord has for us to explore together? I thought it would be helpful just to have some idea. Professionally, this is a, I'm not sure this is a gospel according to a Christian executive or not, but I'm going to share a little bit about my personal journey in the context of my professional life. So I thought in order to do that, probably knowing a little bit about my professional life would be helpful. And so um, I come from a family in business, construction and real estate. So I just got a couple quick slides. So my grandpa came from England in 1908, Canada, in 1911. He designed what at that time, the 1911 uh, building called the World Newspaper Building at the time, now called the Sun Tower. It was the tallest building in the British Empire in 1911. And so uh, pretty proud of my grandpa. He was one of my heroes in life growing up. Uh, in terms of his faith journey, he was a uh, very dedicated layman, uh, was the Sunday school superintendent at First Baptist Church for 23 years. That's a guy who, he, he showed up regularly to, to, to serve in the Christian community. And um, if you go to Toronto and if you know, if you are interested in the Canadian Business Hall of Fame, my grandpa's in the Canadian Business Hall of Fame as someone who started a company called Dominion Construction. My dad joined the family company in 1938. Uh, worked for the company for 50 years, 5-0, 1938 to 1988. He continued to come to the office for another 10 years, but we stopped paying him after 50 years. <laughs> we said 50 years, 50 years is enough. And uh, he was a keen reader. I'm a keen reader. That's why I brought a couple books for people who might want to read. Dad read about the Rockefeller family. Some of you would have heard of the Rockefellers. They kind of did okay in business. <laughs> Dad went to New York and saw the Rockefeller Center in New York. Beautiful office towers, integrated architecture, plazas and fountains. And he came back with the desire to create something similar in Vancouver. And that's where the idea of creating the Bentall Center came from. Named after my grandpa, developed by my father. And so the, the five towers of the Bentall Center in downtown Vancouver were a spare time project that my dad worked on for 20 years while he was running a construction company. And dad's not in the Canadian Business Hall of Fame, but he was honored to be uh, inducted into the the Order of Canada. So these are men who have been recognized in Canada for their contributions and again another hero in my life, my dad. I ended up, dad worked for the company for 50 years. My grandpa was only there 44, 1911 to 1955 and he had a heart attack in 1955. Didn't pass away at that time but he stepped back from the business at that moment. Grandpa was there 44 years, dad 50. I was only with the business for 20. So I'm a pale in comparison, but I did have a chance to become president of the construction company, Dominion Construction. During the period of time I was there, we built GM Place, now known as Rogers Arena. When we built that just over 25 years ago, it was a $102 million project, so it was the largest project in our company's history to that time. So it was a great privilege to be involved in that. We can take no responsibility for what happens with the Vancouver Canucks on the ice. <laughs> there's, only, there's only so much you can do. We did put a, a lucky loony underneath the center ice, but didn't seem to help anything. <laughs> it, it, it was a great privilege to follow my father and my, and my grandfather in the business. Unfortunately, uh, my dad and his two brothers were, were given the shares of the business and had a falling out between the three brothers. And as a result of that, uh, a sad disagreement between the future, three brothers about the future direction, the business all got sold uh, over 20 years ago. 
And so uh, I've had nothing to do with the business for uh, over 20 years. And uh, although the Bentall Center still carries my grandpa's name, our family has nothing to do with the business. And it's really quite a tragic circumstance that happened in our family business. So when I ended up leaving the business, I decided to take a year's sabbatical, so I worked on writing a book. So my first book, uh, called uh, The Company You Keep, is about, uh, I believe, uh, somewhat autobiographical about the journey that I've been on in my own life to try and understand what it means to have in my life, like Jesus had Peter, James, and John, his three closest confidants. Uh, I wrote about my experience trying to live out a, a life in covenant friendship with two other men, Carson Pugh and Bob Coons. So we're here at Trinity Western University's Richmond campus. Bob Coon is president of Trinity Western University. Some of you might know of Bob. Close personal friend of mine, and then another fellow, Bob, or Carson Pugh. So the three of us. So we wrote about our experience trying to understand what it means to, to follow Jesus in a covenant community. Uh, also, since leaving the family business, I wrote a second book called Leaving a Legacy. That's my grandpa on the right and my dad on the left. Wrote a little bit about our experience and all the mistakes, basically the books, all the mistakes our family made and what you can learn from them. So, uh, the, the, as a result of writing these books, uh, I've continued to be asked to speak uh, about our family business experience. And now what I do full-time, I teach at the University of British Columbia, family business studies, and also consults the families who are in business together. And for the last 20 years, I've been devoting my life to try and help other families have a better result than we did with their family business experience. So there's a little bit about what I do. 20 years in our family company, 10 years in the real estate side, 10 years in the construction side, and then 20 years since then, uh, working as an executive coach, as a family enterprise advisor, and as, a, as an educator. So that's my professional context that gives me um, a foundation upon which I'd like to share with you some thoughts. Well, what does it mean to follow Christ in the middle of, of, my, of my life? So why don't we just uh, pause and pray, as Jonathan has already done so, but uh, let's just pray a little bit about what God might want to reveal to us. Heavenly Father, as I have been seeking to follow you in my professional life, you know we've been lots of ups and downs. Lord, as I pray today, I pray that you would open all of our hearts and minds to what you would have to say to us about how we can follow you in our professional life. Guide us, teach us, we pray. In Jesus' name. So, <clears throat> share more. There's the background on my, on my professional life. Let me just talk a little bit now, uh, share what I've come to share with you really is much more personally about my life in the, in the context of how I tried to live this out. So I'd like to start by saying my wife and I have four children, they're all married now, but our daughter Jen, uh, about, uh, let's go back to an experience I had with our daughter Jen about four and a half, five years ago. Um, she was not yet married at the time, so she's the only one still living at home. We, we just moved into the our condo in the Athletes Village on village on Falls Creek, and uh, Jenny was still in with us at home, and Jenny's a graduate of the Cordon Bleu Cooking School, and I just want you to know, if you only have one of your kids choose to stay living at home, choose the one who's, who's graduated from the Cordon Bleu Cooking School. <laughs> and I want to go back to that experience, because I remember one evening, Jenny prepared some beautiful halibut rice bowls, and my wife and I and Jenny sat down for dinner, and the two of them had started to eat, and I came into the family room and sat down. And I said to Jenny and to Allison, I said, well, the three of us are living together here, 
and I would like your help. And they kind of looked up, munching away on their halibut rice bowls, and they were interested, and I said, um, I want your help. And they said, what, 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 do you, what do you want to help with? And I said, I would like to change everything about my life. And our daughter Jenny said, aren't you being a little bit dramatic yet? <laughs> and I said, no, I want to change everything about my life. And she said, well, what are you, what are you talking about? And I said, well, you know, um, Paul tells us that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. All the old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And I said, I'm not there yet. There's a, there's a lot more I'd like to change about my life. I, I don't believe that in my life I have changed sufficiently. I want to change everything about my life. And she said, well, he, Jenny, she's a, an executive coach. <laughs> she said, can you be a little more specific about how you'd like to change? And um, I'll, I'll tell you that by saying this. Uh, maybe start with a, a confession. Uh, I told my wife and our daughter Jen about three things that I was struggling with, and I'd like to compare, uh, confess them to you this morning, and then we can talk about how I think God has been teaching me about how to deal, deal with these three things in my professional life. The first is that I'm a planner by nature, and uh, what that means is I tend to live in the future. And I mentioned my two friends, Carson and Bob, in covenant relationship with them. Bob tends to live in the present. Carson tends to live in the past. I tend to live in the future. We're a good group. But what, what, as a result of wanting to live in the future, that's resulted in me often um, rushing through life, missing the richness of the present. So I told Allison and James, I want to learn to live more in the present. The second thing, uh, because I am future-oriented, uh, I tend to often think about what's going to happen tomorrow and import the problems from tomorrow into today, so I tend to worry. And I see someone else nod, so <laughs> someone else is nodding. So I, I, rather than thinking about today and being joyful in today, I tend to worry about what's going to happen tomorrow. And thirdly, um, it's been common for me, I don't know whether any of you would ever have this problem, but I tend to judge other people. I tend to look at them. And uh, I remember meeting Dr. John Stott. He was the chaplain to the Queen of England. Some of you may know him as a, as a well-known Christian writer, theologian. But I met him when he was teaching at Regent College when I was a young man. And I talked about leadership because I wanted to lead our family company. And I said, What's the, what, is the essential, what are the essential prerequisites to leadership? And he said, the, the, the foundation of leadership is a healthy dissatisfaction with the status quo. Lovely statement. We need to have a healthy dissatisfaction with the status quo. I have an unhealthy dissatisfaction with the status quo. I'm always criticizing everybody, right? Because I tend to bring too much judgment. So to put it in simple words, I told my daughter Jenny and my wife Allison that I'm prone to hurry, I'm prone to worry, and I'm prone to criticize. And I said to them, I'd like your help because I'd like to change everything about my life and, and in, in those three areas. And I imagine one or two of those may be challenges for you. And so I'd like to talk about each of these three things today and how have I tried to address these and how have I tried to allow God to change me in those areas in my professional life. So let's just start thinking about that. As a young man, I started out in our in our family business, and I was impatient, in a hurry, to try and build on the foundation that my dad and my grandpa had established in our family business. I was in a hurry to try and get things done. But because I was in such a hurry, I tended to miss what was going on. Um, it's interesting. 
one of the reasons that I, because uh, I live in the future, uh, springtime is my favorite time of the year. Because in springtime, summer's coming, and I'm thinking about summer, right? And um, on, on the flip side, I don't really enjoy summer very much because I'm already thinking about fall's coming. <laughs> so um, one of my water ski friends says that uh, he's like me, lives in the future. And uh, he, he says spring is like Thursday night because the weekend is almost here. But you know, I, I, I've in much of my life been obsessed with the future and always wanting to race towards the next step. Uh, to give you an idea how obsessed this, I was about this when I was a little boy. I could hardly wait to be 16. Why? So I had a chance to drive. And then once I got a car, I could hardly wait to be 23. Why? Because my mom and dad said I couldn't get married until I graduated. I could graduate when I was 23, and I could hardly wait to get married. And then when I, when I became 23, I joined the family firm, and I couldn't wait to be what? To be president of the company. The goal was to do that by the time I was 40, so I could hardly wait to get to be 40. And um, in my 40s, I decided to pursue a water ski tournament a water ski championship in Canada. And I remember my coach said to me, you'll be, take five or six years. So we set a goal to become um, water ski champion by the time I was 46, so I could hardly wait till I was 46 so I'd become a champion. I came second, and I came second again. So we had to wait for the next division. So I, I could hardly wait to be 52 so I could be the next division. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get the picture? I was wishing my life away. Currently I'm 63, I'm, I'm not, racing to get to 65. <laughs> so I'm trying, I want to learn how to live in the present a little bit more. And uh, I was thinking about this, um, and I thought, as I was reflecting on it, I, I was contemplating the fact that uh, this has been a, a pattern for me in my life, and I wondered whether there was any time in my life when I actually had understood what it meant to be present. And I, and I, and I went back, and I, as I was thinking about this with Alison and Jenny talking about it, when I was 23 years of age, I had a, a, an amazing opportunity to focus on being grateful and present in the moment. It happened because I was playing rugby and I took the ball and went like this. And as I was going like this, someone tackled me. And now, someone coming this direction, your, your knee is not meant to have someone come in this direction. So tore the medial collateral ligament in my knee, ended up with a cast from my hip to my ankle, couldn't walk, couldn't do anything. And as a result of that, there was a little uh, impediment when God made me a little something the base of my spine, it wasn't quite right, so I had elective surgery, I didn't need to have it, but I could have it, so my, my knees wrecked, why don't I go and have my back cut open and have that done at the same time, so I went to the hospital, I had this pyelonidal sinus surgery, and I had uh, cast on my knee, so I was in the hospital, couldn't do anything for several days, that was not like me, I had an opportunity to think and reflect, I was by myself in the hospital for several weeks, and someone loaned me a book, I don't know if any of you have ever read uh, Brother uh, Lawrence. But Brother Lawrence has written a book, some of you are nodding, The Practice of the Presence of God. Let me just read to you a couple of little excerpts from Brother Lawrence. Uh, he says that um, in his book he talks about how it doesn't matter what we're doing. He was a, a monk and one of his jobs was to work in the kitchen and uh, work in the dish pit. And he said, I find worshipping, my best worship times are in the kitchen rather than the cathedral. And therefore he could pray, and I quote, Lord of all pots and pans and things, make me a saint by getting the meals and washing up the plates. So God wants us to be able to worship him in the midst of washing up the plates and preparing the meals. Brother Lawrence was comfortable worshiping 
in the kitchen more than in the cathedral. How about you in your work day? Are you consciously worshiping as much as when you gather on a Sunday morning? When I was 23 years of age, I started thinking about this and longed to understand what it would, like, what it would be like for me. I read this over 30 years ago. And I knew that there was this invitation, as Psalm 46 says, be still and know that I am God. I knew that there was this invitation. And I experienced the wonderful presence of the Lord while I was in the hospital. But I spent much of my life running. Running is not being still. I spent much of my life. So this is not an, an, an opportunity for me to say how well I've done this over the uh, 30 years. Most of you are more like uh, the age I was when I first started thinking about this. My invitation to you is to suggest you can spend the next 30 years running and miss the opportunity. I was aware this was available to you. I spent most of the last 30 years running. And so I want to invite you to think about what are you doing to slow down, spend enough time. I love the invitation we had this morning to spend some time just to pray and ask uh, the Lord what he would speak to us today, what he would want to say to us. So I want to encourage you to think about that. Now, it hasn't been a total failure in, in this area. Let me talk about some of the things that I have uh, had some uh, pleasure of in terms of learning how to do this. One thing that helped me was a friend of mine in Toronto when Alice and I lived there, a fellow named Jeff Moore, uh, had his own consulting firm. And, and I remember talking to him about it. I said, oh, you, you have a partner in the business. It was Jeffrey Moore and Associates. I said, do you have a partner? And he said, yes. And I said, who's your partner? And he said, my heavenly father. <laughs> so Jeffrey Moore and Associates is, is you and God. He said, that's right. And I said, well, tell me what that means. And he said, I see my job not as a one-man band, but as a partnership. And everything I do, I want to do in companionship with him and so that I walk with him in my work. And so several years ago, when I set up my own uh, business and set of lives, and it's just David, just one person. But I, I wanted to borrow from Jeff to try and make God my partner. And um, so what I'm doing now is I'm ensuring fundamentally is working as an advisor to families in business. But let me tell you how that started because it was quite remarkable. I was in Toronto but speaking at, at a um, an event and I ended up in a room with two brothers who were in business together in Quebec and uh, they had a 50 different um, uh, eye clinics and optometry shops. And um, I ended up putting being put in a room with no training whatsoever. Uh, and they asked me to help facilitate a conversation in their family. And uh, I felt like an imposter because they didn't know I had no training and I was put in this room. And, uh, and uh, they asked me to consult them and I to better get some training. So I, for the next several years, I took some training, hired a mentor to help me so I could become a professional advisor. And attended a number of conferences. And in very short order, I went from being an imposter to uh, an apprentice, to a journeyman, and all of a sudden people started talking about me as an expert in that business. And I'm going, just a few months ago I was in a cluster, how can I be an expert like that? And so I called my watershed coach who lives in, in Florida, and I said, Chet, I'm having a problem. And he said, what's that? And he said, well, people are start, starting to talk to me about it. He is an expert in family business. And I, just a little while ago, was a rookie. And I said, I'm a little bit concerned about that. And he said, what are you concerned about? And I said, it's making me, I don't like the feeling of pride that comes when people talk about me as an expert. And he said, well, that's an easy problem to fix. And I said, well, how can you fix that? And he said, well, David, um, 
where did you get your brain? And I said, well, that would be a gift. He said, that's correct. Said, where did you get your experience? And I said, well, I could say that would be a gift. He said, that's right. And he said, so you are bringing gifts to people when you're working with them. Where's their pride in that? Does a UPS delivery man have pride about the fact that he's bringing a gift to someone else? The gift, he's just a delivery man. He's just bringing the gift. He said, all you're doing is bringing your gifts to other people. And he said, I don't want you to be proud of that. And as I began to think about that, I realized that I needed to walk in more dependence. Just like my friend Jeff Moore looked at his business as a partnership as well. How do we do that unless we spend time? being with him. And so what I've started doing in my professional life is seeking, when I go into a new engagement with a client, recognize that I'm not going alone, and rather come with my partner. And so, uh, as an example, there's a family in Calgary, uh, three brothers and a sister, and they, uh, I described to my wife, Allison, how they seemed like they were holding hands, running off a cliff together, and they wanted me to go with them. <laughs> and, I, I, I was not I was not enjoying the experience very much, and so I, I realized that I needed to be still and pray and ask God to be with me, to help me, to help this family. And so this has become my journey. The more I recognize that I cannot help these families on my own, the more I'm learning to come to God and ask Him to be my partner in the work. And so I'm learning to, instead of being in a hurry, to get to the client meeting and recognizing the need to be present. And to give you an example of how uh, one, of, one of the meetings that I had that went particularly well, and we were again encountering different clients. And I remember getting up early in the morning and having time to worship and to pray. And then I put my headphones in, had some worship music on as I went to the meeting, got there early, not in a hurry, got there early, had a chance to pray in the room before they came. And there was something, something amazing about that day because I arrived not in a hurry with my partner. And I would invite you to think about your work. Are you in a rush? You arrive two minutes late to everything, or are you there a couple minutes early to pray that you, the Lord will be present with you as you seek to go about your work day? And so I've been wanting in my, in my professional life to be still, know that God is there as my partner. So that's the first thing. I'm trying to move away from hurry be still and have him. Now the second, thing, second concern I want to talk to you a little bit about is this idea that because I'm future-oriented, I tend to be worrying about what's going to happen next. And uh, as a young boy, this created problems for me because I could be frightfully anxious prior to a rugby game or a soccer game or a high school dance. As a matter of fact, um, on the first sock-off in grade 8, I was so nervous that I threw up before the, before the dance. And all of my friends saw I'd been drinking. It had nothing to do with drinking. I was just nervous about the girls. And um, I was so nervous as I prepared for that. Um, and I remember uh, thinking about the future of one of my clients, who was a coaching client, came from South Africa. He went 364 days between jobs. He was eating into the retirement savings he brought from South Africa, and he was struggling with that. And he was a and I said to him, he said, grew up in a Catholic uh, home, and I said to him, Andrew, I said, did you know that in the Bible it says we're not to kill, not to murder, not to steal? He said, of course. And I said, did you know that it also says we're not supposed to worry? He said, where does it say that? And I said, well, um, in Philippians 4, don't worry about anything. 
He said, but I've got to get a new job. And I said, well, I understand. I said, I want you to send out your resume. But I said, I think, don't worry about anything means don't worry about whether you are going to get a new job. I mean, that's, that's included in anything, I think. And um, so we had a, a great opportunity to talk a little bit about what that meant. And um, what I love about it is it's a, it's a command, but it's not just a command about what not to do. Don't worry. It's a command about what to do instead. It's really hard to say, don't worry. But God doesn't say that. He says, don't worry instead. Pray about everything. And so now, I encourage my friend Andrew, my client Andrew, to think about how he could do that. And you know, um, you've probably heard that it's not possible to break a habit. You need to replace a habit with a new habit. So if you drink too much Coke, maybe the answer is to replace that. I began replacing Coke with cranberry juice until someone told me there's more sugar in cranberry juice. <laughs> <laughs> so I started replacing cranberry juice with water. But you know, it's, it's, we're as human beings, we're, we're creatures of habit. And so God, God understands that. Don't worry. If you have a habit like me of worrying, the invitation is to replace that habit with prayer. And um, because I was uh, wanting to encourage my friend Andrew to deal with this, I encouraged him to talk to, about, talk to God about the problem. Make sure he got his resume out, but I encouraged him to talk to God about the problem. And he went off to, to uh, Prague for his uh, honeymoon, and during this period of time still without a job. And I said, every time that you want to worry about it, I want you to get on your knees and pray. And so he called me when he came back from Prague, and I said, how did it go? And he said, my knees are completely worn out. <laughs> and I said, that's, that's a great sign, because he was learning to develop this new habit. And so I, in my professional life, when I'm tempted to worry, I've been using that as an, an invitation to pray about what's happening in my, in my professional life. And you know, uh, when I ended up selling my interest in our family company, because the construction company ended up being to my sister and her husband. And I, like my friend Andrew, went for a long period of time without any new job opportunities. And I remember wanting to worry about that. And so began to pray about what I would, what I would do. And um, very important for me during that period of time to pray about what God would have me do. And I want to share with you how remarkable that was for me because uh, remember I mentioned earlier I'm a planner by nature? If you had sat me in a field for a thousand years, I never would have created the career I have now. I never thought of myself as an executive coach. I never thought of myself as a teacher. I never thought of myself as someone to be an advisor to families and business. And so what did I do during that period of time when I was struggling every morning in the shower? Going, what do you want me to do today? Why was I praying in the shower? Because I was worried about what I was going to do today. <laughs> and so. I want to invite you to think about this invitation we have here. Do not worry. Instead, pray. And notice in the second part, pray with thanksgiving. We can present our requests to God. But first I thought, well, that's odd. How can I be thankful for my circumstances? How can I be thankful in the middle of it? Do I, am I thankful that I have no job? Is my friend Andrew thankful for 364 days without a job? Should he be thankful that all of his savings are going down? No. What God wants us to do is focus on the things that we can be thankful for in the midst of things. We're thankful that he's with us in the middle of, of those things. And so, um, to give you an idea how this became particularly clear to me, 
I was down at the water ski tournament in California, in uh, Florida, with a friend of mine. And I, we had two chances to ski on Saturday, one in the morning and one in the afternoon. Saturday morning, I didn't ski very well. So how do you think I was feeling about skiing in the afternoon? I, I was nervous, right? I was worrying about skiing in the afternoon. So one of my friends and I were, were together, and we were talking, and I was, I was very stressed. And he grabbed me by the sh shirt and said, David, close your eyes. How many birds can you hear singing? I can hear four or five different birds. He said, why don't you spend some time just thanking God for the day? I said, I can't. i got to get ready to ski. And he said, what do you want to do? Worry? And I said, well, yeah. And he said, well, why don't you spend some time being thankful? I said, but when I, get, when I get down on the dock for my turn, I need to be thinking about what I'm going to do. And he said, no, you don't. I said, well, yeah. And he said, no, you don't. He's an executive coach. He's a, a, a professional coach for performance sports. I thought, well, I'm going to try this dumb idea. So I got down on the dock, and instead of thinking about my next ski, I looked at the, at the sky. Thank God for the beautiful environment, palm trees, beautiful sunset. Guess what happened? The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds, minds in Christ Jesus. If we don't worry, instead pray and give thanks, He will give us peace. And I prayed about whether I should share with you what happened next. Because there's a temptation in me sharing it because it went well. <laughs> and to tell you how well it went. So I don't want to share it with you because of that. I want to share it with you because I want you to know how well it went. Because God showed up and completely changed who I was. That day, I skied horribly the first round. The second round, I skied the very best of my life ever. Never before, never since, ever done as well. And as a result of that performance, became the number one ranked water skier in the world in my age group. Why did, why did that happen? I, did, I had no more training. No more weights, no more coaching. Very simply, because I didn't worry, I gave thanks, and I had peace, and so I was able to perform well. So, God be the glory, not David. But isn't that amazing? They don't always happen that way. I continue to pray, don't always ski as well, right? But the point of the matter is that God gives us a way of living. And just like I've talked to you about inviting God to be my partner when I go into a room to meet with a client, I'm seeking to do the same thing in my work. It might be a big part of my, my experience. Isn't that what we all want? Don't we all want peace? Don't we, don't we all want calm? Don't we all, all want to deal with challenging circumstances and give peace in the middle of Don't we want in our minds, in our hearts, or in our gut? Don't we want that peace? That's what, what we can have. Just before I move to the, the final thing I want to chat with you about, the neuroscientists have started to discover that the Bible is right. Did you know that? The neuroscientists have discovered that it's not possible for human beings to worry and be thankful at the same time. We can't do it. God knew when he designed us that if we would obey him and give thanks, we can't worry. I'll give you one example of how that worked out for me. I was in Toronto, 
And I was asked to give a, a, an address at lunchtime the whole family business to 700 legal professionals. And I remember being ready to go and uh, going up an escalator and going to go across to the convention center. And as I was going up the escalator, I thought, I'm speaking for, at lunch, 700 legal professionals. I think they're going to have me for lunch. And I began to worry, like, what do I have to share with these guys anyway? I was, began to get nervous, obviously. I was worrying about the next half an hour. And so I thought, well, why don't I think about what I'm thankful for? So as I was starting to go up the escalator, I started listing what I was thankful for. And then I had to walk two blocks across the, uh, above the street and then down the escalator on the other side. By the time I got to the, the uh, venue where I was speaking, I'd spent so much time talking to the Lord about what I was thankful for. I was completely at ease and not concerned about what those legal professions would have to say about me. What about you in your professional life? Do you take time to be thankful for what God has done in your life and allow him to give you peace? The neuroscientists have recognized that that's a good idea, just like Paul did when he wrote to us. So um, finally, I want to talk with you a little bit about the idea that we shouldn't judge. I tend to be someone who is judgmental. And uh, God has been teaching me how to become more loving instead. And uh, I, I phoned my sister Mary and I was talking to her one day and told her that the neuroscientists had discovered that it's not possible to worry and be thankful at the same time. And she said, did you know that the neuroscientists have also discovered it's not possible to be judgmental and loving at the same time? Well, that's interesting. That night, our two sons-in-law came over for dinner. Our daughter, uh, Christy, and our daughter, Stephanie's husbands, came over, Steve and Kyle. They walked into the house, and we were getting ready for dinner. I noticed that they weren't treating our daughters the way I thought they should. <laughs> judgment. Right? Judgment. I, I was becoming judgmental. It's one thing to make a judgment. They, I didn't think they were treating the way they should. But then to become judgmental, to condescendingly look at these men as though they're not behaving the way they should. And I thought, well, my sister said, I, I have to make a choice here. Am I going to love these boys? Or am I going to judge them? And I recognized that uh, I had to pick. And we're, we're encouraged to, to think about not judging, you know, James says, who do you think you are judging your fellow human beings? It should say, who do you think you are, David, judging your two sons-in-law? Right? Uh, why don't you look at the speck of sawdust in why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother in your brother or your son-in-law's eyes and pay no attention to the law in your own? And so um, clearly God wants us to be more concerned about our own imperfections. And being judgmental has been a challenge for me not just in my relationships with our sons-in-law, but also in my marriage, my wife. And uh, to give you an idea what that's been like, um, <coughs> Allison and I were at the White Spot on Broadway one day, and uh, uh, this was back when we uh, just moved back to Vancouver in 1986, but still working in a family company. And I was struggling not getting along with my uncle, and I, I said to Allison, you know, I'm really struggling trying to get along with my uncle. And I, was, and I was complaining, and she interrupted me. She said, David, I think I'm having the same problem with you that your uncles are. And I said, well, what's that? She said, well, you always think you're right. I said, what's wrong with that? 
because I believe that I was usually right, this fostered in me a judgmental attitude towards my wife. And um, you get an idea what that was like. Shortly after our third child was born, we were living in Toronto at the time. Allison was having trouble regaining her pre-pregnancy figure. And she said to me one day, I'm feeling fat and ugly. This, gentlemen, this is not what you should say. <laughs> I said to her, you'll continue to feel fat and ugly unless you get out and run. Uh, uh, do not do what I I could give you lots of examples. Uh, thankfully, Alice and I have been married now for 40 years, and, uh, and uh, we're, we're learning to love each other more as, as the time goes on. But um, I'm so grateful that she's willing to forgive this husband who spent much of his life being judgmental towards her. And I'd like to talk to you a little bit about some of you are married here, some of you hope to be married here, um, some of you don't want to be married to someone like me. But uh, I, I want to share with you just some real practical advice about living out our, uh, our, our faith in our marriage. I had, this, I had this habit of criticizing my wife all the time. As a matter of fact, uh, it was biblically based. In, in, in scripture it says, husbands love your wives, and there's a few other words, and present them faults before the king. So I thought, my job is to love my wife and present her faults before the king. So, husbands love your wives, present her faults before the king. So you need to figure out what the faults are and get rid of them. <laughs> <laughs> right? That was my biblical model for marriage. for marriage. Do you know what it says in between? Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Not criticizing her kind of thing. I was trying to fix her. So when we got into a very challenging period of time earlier on in our marriage, I remember reading a book that you probably have never heard of because I read this 23 years ago and it was written 10 years before that, so most of you probably never heard of it. But the book's called Love Life for Every Married Couple. Dr. Ed Weed wrote this book a number of years ago. And what he said in the book is he said that there should be absolutely no criticism of a spouse in your marriage ever, not to their face, nor behind their back. And I'm going, why did you read that right? What am I going to do with my spare time? <laughs> my favorite hobby was criticizing my wife. I was really good at it. I had biblical basis for doing it. Husbands love your wife, present her faults before the king. And yet, who do you think you are, judging your wife? I, that's, it was crazy what she had to put up with. And so this rocked my world. And so I thought, well, you know what? What I'm doing ain't working. Why don't I try something different? And so I thought, I'm going to make a commitment as Dr. Ed Weed encouraged me to never criticize my wife ever again. I lasted 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> so I renewed my vow, and I lasted a minute. I never told Allison. This is just between me and God. I made a friend never criticize her ever again. And it took a couple of weeks. I got that down so I could be maybe 10 minutes between criticism. Never talked about it. We continued to pray that God would help me to not judge my wife, but rather to, to love her. What's interesting, I never told her about this. 20 years later, we were in a Bible study on Valentine's Day, three or four other couples, and I said, let's go around the table and talk about one thing you appreciate about your spouse. And Allison said, can I go first? And she said, I said, sure. She said, you know what I appreciate about David? He never criticizes me. He's always my friend. Took 20 years for her to notice 
and to articulate the change. Now, uh, if she, she talked she talked to her yesterday or today, say on these regrets. But this is something that I think God intends for us to do. And so as husbands and wives, I want to invite you to think about how can you move away from judging fellow human beings, whether that's your spouse or the people you work with, and focus more on getting rid of the laws in your own eyes. And uh, my goal is that I would be known as Allison's number one fan rather than her number one critic. So just before we wrap up, I want to talk about how um, uh, it's kind of uh, interesting that more recently, um, uh, talking to my daughter uh, Jennifer about a client and some of the challenges I had with the client, and she said, Dad, you seem to be getting kind of upset. And I said, well, this client is upset. She said, but Dad, like you're getting mad at your client. And I said, well, sweetheart, they're maddening. And she said, I don't think that's how God would like you to be. And I've, be I've begun to realize that this habit of criticizing my wife is how I've often looked at my clients. I walk into the room, and I see what's wrong. I'll see dissatisfaction with the status quo. I see what's wrong. And yet God wants me to come into and bring into my working relationship with my clients not a judgmental attitude, but rather one of love. And so I want to encourage you in your professional life and in your, in, in, your, in your marriages to think about how can you allow God to change to make you more loving rather than being judgmental. Last example I want to give you. I had a client report that I need to do. I've worked with about 80 different family businesses over the last 20 years in various businesses. We always start by the interview and then I do a report that we can use as a foundation for our work together. And my assistant, Carolyn, who's been work, worked with me for over 25 years, types up all these confidential reports after I prepare a draft and then she reviews them before we send them out. And she always looks at them for spelling mistakes, but she also looks at them for tone. And she often says, David, that sounds too hard. You need to tone that down a little bit. And this particular report, I'll never forget, I prayed before I started developing the report. I prayed that I would be not judgmental but loving towards this client. Carolyn called me and said, David, what's the, what's with this report? And I said, what do you mean? It's completely different than all the others. Isn't that interesting? I didn't tell her I prayed about it. She could tell the report was completely different. What about you? Are you praying about the reports you're writing and asking that God would make you more loving and less judgmental? So just to wrap up, I want to go back to that halibut rice bowl conversation I had with my wife, Alice, and our daughter, Jennifer. I said, I want to change everything about my life. That's actually really not true. I wanted God to change everything about my life. And so my invitation to you is not to try and change everything about your life, but rather to allow him to change. Maybe you tend to be in a hurry like I was. I'd invite you to ask God to help you slow down and sit and enjoy the presence of the Lord in your work and allow him to be your partner in your work. Help you might also be like me. You might be tempted to worry about tomorrow, want to import tomorrow's problems into today. I would encourage you like me to pray that God would allow you to let go of the worries of tomorrow and be thankful and trust him for the next day. And thirdly, you might be like me. You might look at others around you and judge them. Always seeing what's wrong with them. And I would invite you, like I have been doing, to ask God to help you have more of a loving perspective. 
more developed around you. So if you're willing, I'd like to invite you to stand up and I'd like to just pray for all of us that God would help us in this way. Can we do that together? Let's just pray. And, and uh, if you're willing, if you would be willing to put your hands out, just be open to the Lord to, to, to come in by His Spirit to help. And this is not for you. This is for us. Yeah. So I, I need this as much as, as any of you, perhaps more than all of you. Dear Heavenly Father, our hands are open. Because we want you to go up. And we want you to change us.